Missy Arlington, good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. How you feeling? We good? We good? All right, cool. Listen, my name is Eric, location pastor here. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, that's where we're going to be. And so if you're looking for that, Nehemiah is closer to the beginning of your Bible. If you have a copy with you, um, no shame in the game in using the table of contents. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's completely fine. Uh, the text will actually be on the screen. And, and, and while you're looking for that, um, I feel the need to say this. Y'all, we are gathered in worship today. People all over the city of Arlington gather here in worship. Not because we believe that God is a fairy tale or that God is some myth or God is an object or a product of wishful thinking. We're gathered in worship this morning because we believe that God is there, that he's real. And we don't simply believe, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we don't simply believe that God is real and God is there. We do not worship a God who is the blind watchmaker of deism. We do not worship a God who simply sets the gears of creation in motion and leaves it to run on his own. No, we serve a God who is there, he's real, and he's also personally involved in the world today. And that's why we titled this series, What Can God Do? It's because we're asking ourselves, what is God actually up to in the world today? What is God up to in our lives? And how does he desire for us to participate in the work that he is doing. And so right now, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to read uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time that we have left focused um, on this text. So this is Nehemiah chapter 2, and this is the word of God. Here it is. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I, namely Nehemiah, was very afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, why are you, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if you, your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king has sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and, and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what the Lord had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. 
There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I, I went by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down in his gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I had went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with, the gate, with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And this is the word of God. Let's take a moment to pray together. Father, we come before you today asking you to meet us right where we are. For those of us who need encouragement, I pray that you will meet us there. For those of us who need conviction, God, I pray that you will meet us there. For those of us who need salvation, I pray that you will meet us there. Father, I pray that your words will cut us to the heart, that we will realize that the words that I just read are not regular words that those are your words, the very words out of the mouth of God. Help us to receive them as such. Help us to receive them as, with faith and with obedience too. So God, we love you, we need you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. If you agree, say amen, amen. All right. And so guys, we tend to think that walls are inanimate objects, that they are things built with brick and mortar and wood, we tend to think that walls do not have voices, but I'm here to tell you this morning that they do. Walls can speak. Let me prove it to you. There is a wall that speaks less than a mile from here. I'll jog your memory. 23 years ago, passenger planes were used as missiles and flown into buildings up and down the East Coast around our country, including a building right up the street called the Pentagon, the center of defense of our country. Lives were lost. Our nation was plunged into a period of mourning. And every September 11th, if you've noticed it, there is a large American flag that is draped over the exact spot where that plane breached that wall. I want you to picture that wall this morning with that American flag hung over it. And I'm here to tell you that that wall actually says something if you're willing to hear it. It says this. It says that while there were people meant on destroying our country, the democracy of America still stands. There are more walls that speak, if you are willing to hear it. Let's go a couple of miles further than that. There's another wall. I took my kids there, a couple of uh, my family. Uh, we all went there a couple of weeks ago. This wall sits along the King Memorial, and that memorial sits along the Tidal Basin of D.C. 
And this memorial is actually this statue of king cut out of a mountain. It's meant to be a visual representation of a line in the famous I have a, I have a dream speech that he gave on Washington all those years ago. And that line is this. It says, with this faith, we're able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. And along that wall, along that memorial is a wall filled with quotes from Dr. King. And that wall literally speaks, if you are willing to hear it, and it says this. It says that the work towards justice is one of faith, and that work is not done even in our day. Walls can speak. And now I want to take you to another wall. This wall is an ocean away, and it existed millennia ago. And I want you to consider what this wall might be saying to you today if you are willing to hear it. I read Nehemiah chapter two, but I want to give you some context because I started, if you, if you haven't been here before, I started right at Nehemiah two. Let me give you some context. The book of Nehemiah starts with Nehemiah hearing some bad news. Nehemiah hears this message. Nehemiah one, verse three, he says, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So you may not know, like, what, what, is that, what does that mean? Let, let me explain the significance of that news that he heard. Listen, when the Babylonians took over Jerusalem in 586 BC, there's another verse in Jeremiah 39.8 that actually describes what they did. It says this. It says the Chaldeans, which is another term for the Babylonians, that they burned the king's house and, and the house of the people and they, I think they have that verse on the screen. And they broke down the walls of Jerusalem. They broke down the walls of Jerusalem. So let's just check this out. That happened in 586 BC. Nehemiah heard this message, but he heard the message, check this, in 445 BC. So do the math. Those walls had been broken down for 141 years. So when, when Nehemiah heard that message, that message wasn't new news to Jeremiah, um, to Nehemiah. But when he heard this message, chapter one actually tells us how he responds. Nehemiah, when he hears his message, he cries, he mourns, he weeps, and he fasts. He's inconsolable about an event that happened 141 years before that moment. Let me put it in perspective for you. What if I came to you right now and I stood up on the stage and I said, the president, y'all, has been shot. President Lincoln was shot at Ford Theater a couple of miles from here. And say somebody in here just broke out weeping, crying, mourning, ripping their garments. I think for most of us, we would say, yes, that is incredibly tragic. But we've kind of moved on. It's been 150 years since that happened. That's similar to what's happening with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is weeping. Why is that? Let me give you a possible reason. Here's the reason. When God gets a hold of your life, old news becomes new news in your heart. When God gets a hold of your heart, you begin to care about things that maybe you saw before, but they're, but they're new in your heart. You begin to care about things that you never really cared about before. Listen, when God transforms your heart, you never cared about the loss, but now you do. When God transformed your heart, 
You may have kind of cared about the poor and marginalized, but you were solely cared, caring about getting yours. When God gets a hold of your heart, now you care about the poor and the marginalized. Nehemiah cared. But hear me this morning. He doesn't care simply about some broken walls. He cared about the message that those walls proclaimed. I'll explain. You see, listen to this. God's name was inextricably linked to his people. And so the fact that the walls and the gates were destroyed said something about the God that Israel claimed to worship. Broken down walls and gates screamed to the nations around Israel a message that was furthest from the truth. The message that those broken walls proclaimed to the nations around was this, that God is powerless, that God is incapable of protecting his people. And Nehemiah, in that moment, for whatever reason, he is struck by despair that God's glory is not being seen among the nations. And so he weeps. Those walls were speaking to Nehemiah, and I believe that those walls posed a question to him that I want to pose to you this morning. And it's this. Do you care about my glory being displayed in the world? Do you care about God's glory being displayed in the world? And I believe this morning, from an ocean away and millennia ago, that God wants to use that same wall in order to pose you the same question. Let's put that on the screen. Do you care about God's glory being displayed in the world? Let me tell you this morning, God is using more than broken walls to call, to call you with that message. God is not just using broken walls, he's also using broken marriages. God is asking you, in the midst of broken marriages, doesn't matter who you are, whether you're single, whether, whether you're separated, do you care about God's glory being proclaimed in the marriages in our church body? And are you willing to do something about it? He's not only calling from the broken marriages, he's also calling you from the broken schools in our city. Feel many of them filled with children who go home wondering about their next meal. Do you, care about my, do you care about God's glory being proclaimed in these schools all around our city? Enough to do something about the poor and the marginalized that exist even in this well-to-do city of Arlington. It's calling you from the broken souls in our city and all around the world where there are so many who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ or many people among the unreached who've yet to hear the message of Jesus Christ. God is saying, do you care enough about my glory being proclaimed that you are willing to open up your mouth and proclaim that message that saved you in order for him to save somebody else? Will you respond to the call to live for the glory of God? I love it here because Nehemiah heard the call from a broken wall and he says, I care about the glory of God being displayed and I'm going to lay down all that I have in order to make it happen. I'm going to surrender all that I have. Everything is on the table in order for the glory of God to be seen through my little life. And my question for you this morning is, will you respond in the same exact way? But let me address a question that you might have. Your question might be, why would I do that? Why would I make living for the glory of God the goal of my life? Here's why. When God knit you together in your mama's womb, he gave you a purpose. 
And let me tell you this morning, your purpose, the reason why you are here, is not for you to go 75, 80 times, 90 times around the sun and fade to black. That's no purpose. The reason why you are alive this morning, the reason why you are living and breathing, the reason why there is blood coursing through your veins, God made you with a purpose, and that purpose is for you to live for the glory of God. That's your purpose. And listen to me, your life, honestly, you may be here, you may not be a believer in Christ, and we're glad that you're here. You are welcome here. I'm glad that you're here exploring Christianity. But let me tell you, your life actually may feel fine right now. But let me tell you, man, like, and I'm saying this out of love, I would hate for you to feel the crushing regret of living a busy life, of living a upwardly mobile life, of living a life where you climbed the ladder, living a life where you owned the home, living a life where you made those babies and completely missing the purpose for which you were created. Your purpose is God's glory. It is. And you may be trying to understand, all right, cool, Eric, you said my purpose is God, glory, God's glory. That sounds so spiritually sounding, I don't even really know what that means. Like, well, what does it mean to live for God's glory? It sounds so spiritual. But let me tell you, hang with me. We're going to take a little excursion. God's glory is his perfection made manifest to the senses. God's glory is his holiness revealed. What is holiness? Well, the Bible describes God, God being holy. And simply that just means this, God is completely unlike us. He is set apart. He is in a different category than you and I. He is so far above us. We have power. Human beings have power, but his power is on another level. He has that holy power. Human beings are capable of love, but his love is on a completely another sphere, completely another, a completely another level. His love is a holy love. Human beings have the ability to be good, but his goodness is on a completely another level than ours. His goodness is holy. I hope you get to the point. Well, in Isaiah 6, it's an interesting passage where the prophet Isaiah is ushered into the throne of heaven. He sees angels all around the throne, and the angels say this about God. They say, in Isaiah 6, 3, they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So like I said before, they're saying, Lord, you are set apart in power. God, you are set apart in your love. God, you are set apart in your goodness. You're holy. So he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, 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 now check this out. You would think that the angels would say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory holiness there. It would make sense. No, but what the angels say is holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with your glory. Why? Because God's glory is his holiness revealed. It's his perfections revealed. Put it this way. Holiness is who God is. His glory is what God shows. And so God is so holy, listen to this, that we can't see him and live, so he determines to make his holiness visible. In other words, he's determined to glorify himself through the things that he's made. Let me show you this in the Bible. Psalm 19.1, it says this. It says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Meaning this, that when you look out at the skies, I don't know if you've ever seen a beautiful sunset, or picturesque mountains. Those do not simply exist for you to say how beautiful is that. Those exist for you to look through them and see the God who made them so you can say 
How powerful must God be? How beautiful must God be in order to make something like that? The skies above proclaim his handiwork. They glorify him. The heavens declare the glory of God, but those, are the, those aren't the only things that should declare the glory of God. Our lives should do that too. That everything you do, the Bible says, with everything, with every breath you have, praise the Lord. The Bible says this, that whatever you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We are called to display the glory of God. But there are some misconceptions about what this means. Because we're tempted to believe that God commands us to glorify him because he needs us to. That, that, that God is some insecure and needy tyrant that needs all eyes on him and he's constantly begging for people to love him and to glorify him. But let me tell you something this morning. I hate to knock you down to size. Hear me this morning. God don't need you. God doesn't need you. The theologians call this the aseity of God, that God is self-sufficient. Or my grandmother, she used to say that God is God all by himself. He needs nobody else. God doesn't need your praise to be God. He doesn't need your worship to be God. God is lacking in nothing when you don't live life for his glory. He is infinitely beautiful and infinitely glorious even when you fail to see him. Just like dark clouds do not in any way diminish the actual glory of the sun, when you fail to worship God, you in no way diminish the glory of who God actually is. He is God, all God. He is God all by himself. God does not need you to live for his glory. However, he calls you to live for his glory. Why does he call you to need for his glory, to live for his glory? Not because you need it. I mean, not because he needs it. He calls you to live for his glory because you need it. That is the purpose by which you were created. He calls you to live for his glory, not out of an expression of, of, of his need for it, but out of an expression of his love for you. You were made to glorify God. And Nehemiah sees here an opportunity to put the glory of God on display by fixing a broken wall. And he surrenders everything about himself. He says, everything is on the table for me to step into my purpose for living for God's glory. So my question for you is this. Is this will you surrender to the call that God has placed on your life to live for his glory? Will you do it? You may look at me and you say, okay, cool, Eric, that, that, that's a great question. But that sounds so abstract, abstract. Will I live for the glory of God? What specifically does that look like? Well, I think actually Nehemiah 2 shows us how he lived for the glory of God, how he surrendered everything for the glory of God specifically. So in the time I have left, we're just going to walk through this really quickly. So we see in chapter 2, we see how the call on Nehemiah's life, when he said, I surrendered all, it actually included his emotions. So I actually read it earlier, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. Nehemiah prays, Nehemiah approaches the king. In verse 1, he pulls up on the king in the month of Nisan, which means that since chapter 1, he had been praying for four months, fasting for four months. He's going about his work for four months, fasting and praying before the king, carrying this emotion, and this emotion has affected him He's been, carrying, he's been carrying this burden, and this burden has affected him emotionally. Verses 2 and 3, we actually see him wearing his heart on his sleeve. It says he's sad in the presence of the king. Let me remind you something here. That time was different than our time. 
Our time, wearing your emotions on your sleeve is looked well upon. We live in an age of authenticity, right? Like, you wear your emotions on your sleeve, you're just keeping it real. You're being authentic, right? However, Nehemiah lived in a time, he worked at a job where showing your emotions could get you killed. Let me explain. See, kings during that time were suspicious people. There were always threats in order to, like, overthrow the king. And so this king was always looking around for potential threats, for clues to danger. And one of the clues that he was likely looking for was any change in the disposition of the people that served him as food. Because kings were often poisoned. And so the fact that, 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 that Nehemiah would come sad into the king's presence was at risk. Showing up to the king looking sad could actually get you dead. And so this actually um, makes sense because when, in verse 2, when the king acknowledges that Nehemiah is sad, you see actually the end of verse 2, it says that I was afraid. And, and honestly, that's why. But here's the thing. Let me talk about why Nehemiah is sad. Here's why. When he received that call to surrender his life to the glory of God, it affected his emotions. It reached his emotions. He didn't just say, God, I want to live for your glory. He actually felt it. Now, let me give you a brief aside about emotions, y'all. Your emotions matter. God made you a whole person. They matter. Your emotions are not meant to be ignored or stuffed. But also as well, your emotions are not meant to be uncritically obeyed. I say this all the time around here. Your emotions are 100% real. You can acknowledge them. But your emotions are not 100% right. They're not. And when we come to faith in God, he calls us to live for his glory. And one of the ways in which he wants, one of the things that he wants to do is he wants to transform our emotional lives. He wants to begin over time to transform our emotions to correspond with what is actually right and true. What I mean by that is our emotions are indicators, honestly, of, of what we love. Our emotions are indicators of what we love the most. And over time, God wants to shape your emotions to correspond to his heart. That will love what he loves. That will hate what he hates. That will get angry at what makes him angry. And in this text, we see um, um, Nehemiah's emotions are being shaped to be sad about what is actually sad. The glory of God not being seen. We see this here in the text. Here's a question that you might have. Okay, Eric, like, how did he get there? Well, I think chapter one and chapter two actually shows us. His emotions were shaped by God because he lived paying attention to God. Remember before this moment, he had fasted and prayed for four months. He's living life in the presence of God, submitted to him. And, and this is what I want to tell you guys today. You can't pursue, you can't pursue God and not begin to care about what he cares about. See, we live in an age that um, uh, theologian, writer, Alan Noble, he calls this age the age of distraction. And you guys get it, because we live in a very distracted world by news cycles and 
digital devices and all of that. But in our age, even among Christians, we can, it is possible for our attention to be so distracted, so scattered, and for us to be so preoccupied with other things that we never take time to actually acknowledge and to sit in and to live in the presence of God. We never take time to bring our emotions, however scattered they are, to God and asking him to transform them. Y'all, let me say something to you this morning. Every other place in life that is trying to grab your attention, they will not, whatever it is, it will not transform your emotions. What will happen is it will entrench you in the emotions that you already have. So what do I mean by that? Listen, Instagram is not going to solve your envy. It's going to give you more of it. The news cycle is not going to solve your fear and your anger. It's going to give you more of it. Your work is not going to solve your greed and your thirst for power. You know what you're going to get? More of it. That's the case. Listen, your emotions are shaped by what you pay attention to the most. But here's the thing. When you pay attention to God, when you live a life seeking him where he is found, when you find yourself in Christian community, when you pray to him, when you fix your eyes on him and his word, the spirit of God uses those things to change you. God desires to give you his heart. So when you give yourself and pay attention to God, what tends to happen, what happens is he fills you with the fruit of the spirit. He takes that hate that was up inside of you and he replaces that with love. He takes that sadness that was in you and he gives you joy. He takes that fear and gives you peace. He takes that hurry and gives you patience. Nehemiah seeks God and his emotions begin to correspond with the heart of God. And so listen, let me tell you this. You may be, you may be thinking, okay, cool. Like, Eric, that sounds great. What do I do with that? Let me give you a first step. The first step to surrendering your emotions to the call for God's glory is to admit that right now you aren't where you should be. You simply lift however you feel to the Lord. You ain't got to tidy up your emotions to come to God. We got a whole psalm book of the Psalms where, where David lifts up just simply how he feels to the Lord and he trusts for God to sort it out. But let me tell you this before I move on. Your honesty about your emotions, however mismatched it is with the heart of God, your honesty about that does not excuse you to be disobedient. So what I mean by that is, just because you don't feel like doing what God has called you to do, doesn't give you permission to not do what God has called you to do. Because here's the thing, God often uses obedience as a tool to transform our emotions. We tend to think, I gotta feel like it to do it, and there's sometimes in life, you gotta do it to feel like it. So what does that mean? That means that we serve out of obedience even when we don't feel like it. We forgive even when we don't feel like it. We sacrifice even when we don't feel like it. My question for you is simply this, and I'll put it on the screen for you. Will you surrender your emotions to God? When you say, God, I lift my emotions to you, God, will you transform them in order for me to have your very heart? We see that in Nehemiah. He surrenders his emotions to God. He begins to feel how God feels, but he also doesn't simply surrender his emotions. He also surrenders his ambitions too. So Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah gets in the presence of the king, and so the king asks him why he's sad. Nehemiah tells him. Verse 5, he prays. He makes a request of the king. He says, 
if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you may send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So listen, until this, more, this point, Nehemiah, he's been praying. But, but we never see an indication that Nehemiah is volunteering himself as the one who would go back and fix those broken down walls. And here he does. And this is how you know that Nehemiah was trusting the Lord. This brother walked into his boss's office and asked for a year paid leave. That brother walked in the office and said, listen, I'm going to need a year off with pay in order for me to go home and, and handle my business. And the king said, yes. Like, you know he was trusting the Lord in that. But, what, but here's the thing. What's what I love about Nehemiah? Nehemiah re rearranges his whole life to be used for the glory of God. He saw in his life an opportunity for God's glory to be seen. And he dropped everything in order to make it happen. I was interested in this. Beginning of chapter 2, Nehemiah is just like us. He's living his life. I surely believe that like, Nehemiah could have lived in Arlington. This brother had security, but he had a security clearance. He had access to the Oval Office. Matter of fact, in, in November 2nd, he stand, I mean, um, in uh, Nehemiah 2, he's standing in the Oval Office of Persia with the king. But at the end of Nehemiah 2, he's not standing in the Oval Office. He's not in his high-rise apartment. He's not, he's not getting brunch with the friends. He is literally stand, standing in the ruins of a war zone. And what I love about it is what that says. When you become captured by the call of God's glory, one of the parts that you surrender to the hand of God is your ambition. It's your ambition. When you are captured by the zeal for God's glory, you are willing to do whatever he tells you to do and go wherever he tells you to go. And here's our issue, y'all. Hang with me. I'm about to step on some toes. And so if you want to see me an email about this, send it to joe.carter at mcleanbible.org. <laughs> But here's our issue. For too many of us, we think that living for the glory of God is synonymous with our lives going up and to the right. That living for the glory of God will mean bigger home. Living for the glory of God will mean better job, good spouse, big family. And here it is. Listen, what I'm about to say is no knock on prophetic words. But I'm concerned that whatever people come to me and tell me what God told them about their lives, it seems to always correspond with whatever their ambition is in the moment. People come to me and say, God told me that that's my wife or husband. They tell me, I'm going to get that job. God told me. I'm going to get that promotion. That promotion is mine. And I'm not saying that God won't necessarily do that, but here's my problem. You never hear stories like Nehemiah where he said, God told me that I'm going to leave the promotion behind. God told me that I'm going to leave that good job behind. Y'all, listen, we tend to think that living for the glory of God means that you're always going to be on the come up. But what if living for the glory of God means that he's going to bring you low? Are you willing to go there? What if God takes your ambition for the palace and he redirects it to the ruins? Are you willing to go? I'll put it another way. Will you surrender your ambition to God? You may think, why in the world would I want to do that? I have a vision for my future. I have a vision for the good life. That's where I want to go. Why would I surrender my ambition to God? And I'm not saying that God would necessarily take everybody from the palace, from your 
GS15 or whatever that is and, 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 and knock you down. I'm not, I'm not telling you that he'll always do it. My question for you is, are you willing to live your life open-handed? Does he have permission to tell you to do that? And you may think, why would I do that? God, if I give up the life that I want, what will I have? Let me tell you what you'll have. You'll have God himself and that's enough. You have God himself, and that's enough. You will not be alone. And some of y'all, y'all are so dead set on what your dreams are that you've never sat in the presence of God with your hands open and said, God, I don't want to live my life the way I want to live my life. I want to live my life the way you want me to live my life. And my hands are open, and I want to do whatever you tell me to do for your glory. Are you willing to do that? And are you willing to trust that whatever God tells you to do, whatever detour that he tells you to take, that he's going to meet you there with a greater joy that you would, um, than you would have if you went your own way? He will. He says, in his presence, there's fullness of joy, and his right hand is pleasure forevermore. So will you surrender your ambition to the God of the universe? Here's my last question, and I'll go ahead and sit down. Because I think you see this in Nehemiah too. I want you to consider this question. Will you, will you surrender your need of approval to God? Why do I say that? Because think about Nehemiah chapter two. Nehemiah, he stands before the king and the king gives Nehemiah all that he needs to go back to Jerusalem and fix those walls, right? And so the rest of chapter two is this. He goes back, he sees all that needs to be done. He, he surveys the issue. He goes back to his people and he gives them a rousing speech to equip them to actually go do the work. But then in this verse, in that, in that, you start to see some people pop up who are just hating on Nehemiah, right? And so you've seen them throughout the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we see them in verse 10 and verse 19. You got Sanballat, Tobiah, and in verse 19, they added some guy named Geshem, right? And so you see them all throughout this book. And while, while Nehemiah is working for the glory of God, they're opposing the work. But not only that, what, what's interesting about this is that they actually accuse Nehemiah of rebelling against the empire. So check out verse 19. Verse 19, they come up to him and they say, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Uh, Y'all didn't catch that, but that's actually a word for us this morning. Living for the glory of the God of the universe will mean rebellion against the gods of this world. You can't serve God and serve mammon. You can't serve God and serve, you can't serve the God of the universe and serve the God of sex. You can't serve the God of the universe and serve the God of power. You can't serve the God of the universe and serve the God of immediate gratification. And here's the thing. When you begin to serve God and turn your back on the kind of gods that, that, that people here in D.C. worship, people might not like that because the direction of your life is a witness that their lives are going in the wrong direction. I love how Nehemiah says with his chest at the end, he says, you will have no portion, no right, nor claim in Jerusalem. Telling them you're going in the wrong direction. So when you don't have the approval of people, what do you do when you're living life for the glory of God? This is what you should do. Keep going. Keep living for the glory of God. You listen, you resolve to live for the glory of God despite what people say. And I say that quickly up here, but that's incredibly hard. That's hard. So how did Nehemiah do it? Well, here, here's the text that helps us. Ben, you guys can come back up. 
Twice in Nehemiah chapter two, Nehemiah says this. He says, the hand of God was upon me. He says it twice. So he says it, he says it in verse eight, after he gets the king's black card, like he gets everything that he needs. He says, man, the king actually did that. He showed me favor because the hand of God was upon me. That same phrase pops up in verse 18. Verse 18, he's trying to encourage the people around him to get the work to actually help him build the wall. And what does he say in verse 18? He says, the hand of God was upon me. All this to say, the only way that you push through the opposition, the only way that you push through the disapproval that is sure to come when you actually live your life for the glory of God, the only way that you do that is this, is knowing that you are not alone. And when God issue his call, he also extends his hand. That anybody who lives the glory of, for the glory of God, he promises to meet you there with his hand. With his hand. And you may be thinking, okay, Eric, what, what does the hand of God even mean? Well, the hand of God in the scriptures, it often described God's intervention in and approval of human affairs. His intervention in and, and approval of human affairs, meaning this, when God calls you to live and surrender all to his glory, He'll meet you there and give you what you need. That's what that means. So when people step out of your life because you're living for the glory of God, God says, you know what? That's fine. I'll step in. You see this all throughout the Bible. I love when the Apostle Paul talked about this. At the end of his life, out of all this ministry that Paul did for living for the glory of God, Paul is about to be executed by the Roman Empire because him living for the glory of God was rebellion against the God of that age. So as he's about to stand to be executed, he's in jail. Paul writes a letter, and at the end of that letter, his last will and testament, um, 2 Timothy, he says, I'm here alone. Everybody deserted me. But in the very next breath, what does he say? He says, but the Lord stood beside me and strengthened me. When you live for the glory of God, when you surrender your need for the, people, for, for, the, for, for the approval of people, guess what God promises to do? He promises to meet you there and to give you his approval. And that's enough. When people disapprove of you for living for the glory of God, God has given his hand of approval. He is with you. He'll vindicate you. And that actually leads me to Jesus. When we read the Bible, the interpretive key to reading the Bible is Jesus. When Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus after he had risen from the dead, he told them that every single piece of the Bible, including the Old Testament, points to me. So how does Nehemiah point to Jesus? Here it is. Nehemiah, I mean, Jesus is the true and greater Nehemiah. What does that mean? Jesus came to earth not to fix broken walls. He came here to fix broken hearts. He came here to fix a broken world. He left the palace of heaven. He came down to the brokenness of this world for us. Our sin brought brokenness into the world. Our sin broke the fellowship that we were meant to have with God. And Jesus says, for the glory of God, I'm not going up, I'm coming down. For the glory of God, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to fix this for the glory of my father. Jesus came and lived in perfect surrender to his father. His emotions were always surrendered to his father. He never felt anything that was opposite to the way that his father felt. His ambitions were always 
were, were, were always surrendered to his father. They were in lockstep in what they wanted to do. And yet he went from the palace of heaven to the cross at Calvary. And this is what is wild about the cross. Jesus was the only one that deserved the hand of God. We talked about the hand of God before. Like the hand of God is God's intervention, God's approval. And Jesus was perfect. He deserved that because of our sin. We do not deserve God's intervention. We do not deserve his approval. We deserve his wrath. And yet on the cross, Jesus, he takes on the wrath that we deserve for our sin, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about what's happening there. Instead of receiving the approval hand of his father, Jesus, who didn't deserve it, experienced from his father's hand the full wrath that we deserve for our sin. And Jesus willfully accepted that. That's the wonder of the cross. God removed his approving hand from the one that deserved it in order for us to have the approval hand of God. He removed his approval hand from the one that deserved it in order to give his approving hand to those who don't. And, that, and, that, and that's you and I. And Jesus rose again, giving anybody the opportunity to place their faith in Jesus. And when you do that, you can know that you're not alone. You can, when you do that, you can, you can receive the purpose for which God made you. He made you for his glory. And it is in that surrender to that purpose for your life, God's glory, is where you will receive life's greater joy. You don't have to live life the way that you're living it. You can trust in Jesus today. You can love him today. But as we, as we end today, I want to pause. I want you to simply consider this question in silence. Doesn't matter if you trust and believe in Jesus Christ. Doesn't, doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for years. God wants to do something in our hearts with this question. Here it is. What is God calling you to surrender in order to live for his glory? What is God calling you to surrender to live for his glory? For some of you, it is your emotional life. For you, you know that you feel about certain things, the complete opposite of the way that God feels about certain things. For many of you, you are more overjoyed um, by your success at your work than overjoyed when somebody trusts and believes in Jesus Christ. You are more sad when people disrespect you than sad about when God's glory is not being seen. And so maybe today you need to lift your emotions to God and say, God, I want your heart. I want you to shape my emotions. Maybe it's not your emotions. Maybe it's your ambition. Maybe you know you are up to something with your life and you've never actually lifted that thing to God and say, God, what do you want me to do? I wanted to give anything up in order to follow you for your glory to be seen in the world. Or maybe God wants you to lift up your need for approval. And we live in the city of Arlington, and Arlington can be a place in which all we do is trying to oppress people with the car that we drive, with how we talk, with our education, with the way that we look. It's easy to come into this church each week and sing about the glory of God, to sing about what should lift our hearts and make us soar with praise. What should put a smile on our face and bring us to our knees and to, sing them with, and, and to sing it with hands in our pockets with a bored look on our face. All because we're scared about what the person next to us might think. I don't know about you, but I serve a God that says with every breath, praise God. I serve a God that says lift up holy hands. I serve a God that says clap your hands, all ye people. 
I serve a God that places me in a body that he's not called me simply to think, God, I love you, but he's called me to respond to that with my body. Many of us need to repent of our need for the approval of people. Or maybe you simply just need to surrender your whole life to God. You've never trusted in Jesus Christ to be your savior. And I don't care who you are, I don't care what you're about. It doesn't matter what you've done. Anything you've done is able to be forgiven. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. He's willing to forgive you. Not only forgive you, he's willing to transform you. This is what grace says. So let's do this. Let's take a moment to pray. But before we do, I'm going to give you just some time to consider this question on the screen. What is God calling you to surrender in order to live for his glory? Let's put that up and take a moment to consider that. Father, we love you. We thank you for what you've done for us. And Father, I pray even as we leave here that we will be zealous, God, for your glory to be seen. There's nothing better to live for. And Father, help us to be willing to surrender all to your good hands. We love you. We praise you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.